Well, this is going to be um, pretty, a pretty, um, I don't know, just historical focused kind of time. Not that any other one of our lessons haven't been historical in their focus. But this is going to be sort of, you could kind of consider this a, uh, maybe a bit of an introduction, um, a very long um, and a very historically intensive introduction to what we'll talk about next week, um, which is, is to really kind of focus in on the, the sort of the leadership and governance of the church from a biblical perspective. I'd like to take a week to just draw that out from Scripture and help us to really think about um, how our church understands that from a biblical perspective, um, but also it's in, it's in direct reference to some things that have happened throughout the church's history um, that are really not so uh, helpful to um, the cause of Christ and to the advancement of the church. And we're going to talk a little bit, bit about that today. I've titled this lesson, The Power of Bishops. Um, and you know, we're moving into a period of time where you begin to see the church getting organized, and, and it's getting organized in ways over the course of a few centuries um, that ultimately leads to what we would probably best understand as the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, or you could say the, the Catholic Church and then it's, it's, um, it's, it's alternate in the East, the Eastern Orthodox Church. But the, the structure and the way that this, this, um, this form of operating as a church <clears throat> came to be was a very gradual process, and, and it was a process that, that was sort of in response to things that were happening in real time at that period in history. So we want to kind of look at that, at those key factors. But as a way of introduction, I want to just kind of draw your attention back to um, some current um, events. And I, I don't know how closely you have kind of followed and tracked with this whole Supreme Court nomination process and all that kind of ensued as a result of that. I certainly am not here to introduce uh, you know, any kind of political discussion about it, but I'm curious not from a political angle, but from just a societal angle, um, how, how some of the events, um, if you're familiar with them, if you kind of paid some attention to it over the last uh, you know, week or, uh, two weeks or so, two, three weeks, some of, some of your response, your, sort of your reaction, some of your thoughts on what you observed and, and how you thought about that as a reflection of what's going on in our society or, or those kinds of things. I want to draw some of that out because I think it's going to be applicable to where we're going to go today. What are some things that you observed that kind of got your attention in one way or another? I think for me, just um, both of them couldn't be telling the truth, and so just how, not saying which one wasn't, but just the right. fact that on that level and that scale that someone, that there's, that there are people that are that dishonest to that degree that it's just, it, it just kind of shook me, like, yeah. um, that people are that willing to be just bold-faced. So what, 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 what motivates what motivates a story someone might be willing to tell? Mm-hmm. A position someone might be willing to take? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. It's just the tribalism of people making up their minds without the facts, I mean, beforehand on either side. Okay. Just what camp you're in, just completely predecided your position. Okay. I was going to say the lack of truth. You know, the, there's no foundation. There was no one truth you know, that you could go to. And, 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 and that's a, in our whole worldview, is like you can believe whatever you 
Yeah. That's okay. And then when you get put into that kind of situation, when you need the truth, it doesn't really work so well. Yeah, so a little, little bit of postmodernism yeah. was coming out of, well, there's that, there's that person's truth and there's that person's truth. And, you know, how, you know, therein lies the controversy. And so, so take that, that point in particular, and that kind of ties into with the kind of the tribalism idea and, and what motivates people to tell the story that they're going to tell about events or what happened or whatever. Um, what, what, kind of, what kind of reactions did that lead to? And how do you, how do you, how do you win the day? Was anybody a little bit uh, disconcerted by the um, by the reaction of those who felt as though the uh, confirmation of um, Judge Kavanaugh was the worst possible thing that could happen for the country? Forget about why they believe that. Just the the, the, the some of the reaction, like we saw on TV. It, sort of what looks like mob kind of activity, right, in the, in the corridors of government, inside the corridors of government, right? Um, so you get into a, a, a period of time or you get into a, a particular uh, scenario in which there is no trusted or believed source of ultimate authority that not only governs your evaluation of events and what people are saying and describing about those events, but it doesn't govern your behavior and your conduct in reaction to things that might not go your way. It it can get very, very disconcerting, to put it mildly. I mean, I can only imagine being someone who's in that that political environment and and some leadership role and having throngs of people show up at my house. And, and, you know, follow me into different, I mean, you've seen restaurant, you know, scenarios and all that sort of stuff. In other words, it leads to a level of, of erratic unpredictability and just vitriolic reaction to a situation that is not tied to, it's tied to more of a tribal kind of mindset. It's not tied to, uh, um, you know, sort of values of interpersonal, decorum and propriety it's not tied it's tied to just you know i'm going to force my will upon you through fear and intimidation and even maybe whatever the next step might require of me i mean it leads to that kind of sense of trajectory in in, in, if 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 you if you think about it i mean it's it's very disconcerting well if you think about that in the absence of clarity in the absence of sort of a collective agreement about what is appropriate, how do we determine truth from error, what process, what means of data collection, you know, what is our approach to ascertaining what is true, what is right, and what system of values or, or standards are going to govern our approach to working through that in a process. If those things become shaky or threatened, then you have sort of a tattered and possibly very unruly situation on your hands. Well, you go back in time 
and you begin to think about the formation of the early church, and then you begin to think about things that took place in the history of the early church, it's not that difficult to see from a historical standpoint, and even if we go a step further and think about it from a spiritual standpoint, how you could arrive at a much more authoritarian understanding and belief in church governance. Because when things are unruly, when things begin to get frayed, when the normal decorum that you've been able to rely upon for a long period of time begins to evaporate, that creates a vacuum. It creates a vacuum of of leadership. And what ends up happening is people begin to flock to some sense of stability, even if it's not based upon clear truth. They begin to, they're, they're, they're drawn to it because, because at least it's stable. At least it's restoring some semblance of order. At least I don't have to feel threatened by this or that in some kind of mob scenario, something very unpredictable. I can't even have confidence that I can walk from here to there without being surrounded by 30 people shouting at me and condemning me and that kind of thing, or worse, right? I can't even have a meal with my family in peace because I'm now a target and people are assembling around me and threatening, you know, I mean, there's been, I mean, there's been the kind of uh, rhetoric that's actually, you know, threatening assault and and just vile kinds of threats. So, I mean, it, it stands to reason that that would, you know, restoring some semblance of order and stability would be a priority on everybody's mind. The question is, what's the nature of that authority? What is the... What informs that authority's principles and values? So you find yourself in different points in history where this kind of thing emerges, and it, and it, affects the, the, it has affected the church. And so at times when there's instability or uncertainty, and, it's, and there's, there's a, an insertion of some uh, mode of thinking, some movement, some, some uh, event that creates even further uncertainty or instability, then all it takes is, is a reaction to that that's strong enough to draw people back towards some semblance of order. And whatever that person or person's belief system, way of governance dictates, in the minds of many is better than what we had. That's what we know. We aren't really evaluating in detail and clear and, and with clarity what they believe. We just know that they're restoring order, and that's good. We, we know that they're, they're delivering a sense of stability. That's what we're after right now. So it opens us up to a sense of, of caution in that no matter what is going on around us, the truth, our confidence and conviction in the truth, and that truth informing our reaction and responses to whatever is going on around us is always the priority for believers. Always. Regardless of what it might cost us. That's what it means. That's the essence of a faithful walk as a disciple of Christ. So, so this period in time in history where you have this rise of the power of bishops, this rise of a hierarchical institutional form of church governance... It really grew out of some things that you could pretty easily understand historically how this, how this could happen. 
And not all of it is sort of in and of itself bad. So just let's just kind of try to work this out, and, and then we'll, this will be kind of a, a lead into what we talk about next week in more specificity as we look into the Scriptures. Some key historical factors that gave rise to what we can call Episcopal power, this, this bishopric power, this institutional authority of the church. The first thing is pretty practical. We've talked about this you know, a number of times, a number of different ways. But one of the things that was just a reality that, was, that had significant impact on the life of the church and the, the doctrine of the church and so on is just the enormous numerical and geographic expansion of the church over this short period of time and it's in the first few centuries of the church's existence. We're talking about a very massive, explosive kind of expansion of the church. Now think about this for a second. The Roman Empire at its peak um, in, in, in about the early part, early part of the second century, the first quarter of the second century, it encompassed an area of two million square miles with contiguous territories in Europe, in North Africa, and in the Middle East. So if we're talking like in that day and time, that, that's, a, that's a massive swath of, of geographic territory, just that, that alone. And, and it's covering multiple continents, as we would understand continents today. So just by comparison, the 48 contiguous United States covers about 3.1 million square miles, so it was, you know, approaching the size of the contiguous United States. And in our minds, we're like, I just, I, I just, I mean, I flew to three different states this past week. I mean, that's no big deal. I mean, I can get from here. You got you to gotta go back in time and think about travel and communication and all that and the vast differences. To be able to have that much under the control of one ruling empire is substantial. It's, it's kind of hard to fathom. But that was the case. Now, so that's, that's the size and scope of the Roman Empire. And by 100 AD, so just think about this. You have the church uh, kind of getting, getting launched in about, um, uh, about 33 AD or so. And you have this period of early church history that we see reflected in Acts for that first 30 years. And then in the 60s, you have sort of the, the writing and circulation of many of the New Testament letters on into the, to the 90s at the, in the, uh, when the Apostle John ultimately died, the passing of the last disciple in the 90s. By 8100, so that's kind of a brief snapshot of time, by 8100, 64% of the port cities in the Roman Empire had a church. And 24% of inland cities had a church. By 180 A.D., just 80 years subsequent to that time period, about 86% of the port cities and 65% of inland cities had a church in them. Of the entire Roman Empire. So we're talking like a massive expansion by the midpoint of the 2nd century to the latter of the 2nd century, where it was just the church was covering the empire in the city centers. Now, it took longer for the church to expand out into the rural parts of the empire, which you could kind of understand in terms of difficulty of travel. Uh, there's more deep-seated um, cultic kinds of roots in terms of belief and all that. Hard, harder to penetrate those societies, if you will, those, those, those rural sort of remote cultures. But nevertheless, when you think about it from purely a, a sort of the cities of the empire, it was, 
It was a massive expansion that covered a, a large portion of the empire in a very short period of time. And if you think about the geographic spread of the empire itself and how all these churches began to be established all over these in all these cities all across the empire, just imagine all the diverse cultures and customs. Imagine the diverse languages and dialects that that would encompass. Imagine the wide range of religious history and practice and, and belief that, that that church emerged into over that period of time. So it stands to reason that when you have that as a a massive growth over a broad geographic swath of territory covering a wide range of of customs and cultures and languages and religious practice, it stands to reason that you could, without a certain sense of continuity, get frayed on the edges very easily. Like, what do we believe about this or that? I mean, you've got this group over here that has this custom that they've adopted since they've, they've, they've had in place in their culture for you know, centuries, and now we're trying to kind of change that. I mean, you've got all these different possible points of discontinuity. So just that alone sort of was fertile ground for we need to have sort of some kind of authoritative structure in place to ensure consistency of belief and practice. And of course, you know from the, from the New Testament, from Acts in particular, you know that that was the practice of, of the Apostle Paul in particular. You see that most, um, most specifically described. But sure, certainly the other apostles as well were, were kind of following this pattern where it wasn't just their habit to, to sweep into town, to bring the gospel, to be there to share the gospel as far and wide as they possibly could until something happened to where they had to get run out of town or something like that or some compelling thing was drawing them to some other place. No, they, they went to these different locales, and they went to these different cities throughout the empire bringing the gospel, but they also appointed leaders that would stay behind, that they, they would disciple these leaders, and they would stay behind, and they would provide leadership and discipleship and, and build that church up in the faith of the gospel and their understanding of the redemptive purposes of God from Old Testament to New Covenant. And, and so that, this practice of missionary discipleship was part and parcel to the work and practice of the early church apostles. So it wasn't like there was this, this leadership vacuum, but you can imagine how it would be difficult to kind of hold on to that continuity without some form of, of structure in place. Richard, I have a question. Mm-hmm. How long would it take a message, just to kind of get my mind around it, from Spain to Rome. You know, if something went south, how long until Jerusalem knew about it? Or until, you know, the Roman Empire? I mean, I... Could they react? Yeah, I'm... I mean, I'm not sure how to... I'm sure we could probably try to... There might be some data on that, but I I don't don't know. But a good amount of time. Be a good amount of time. I mean, you know, you're talking about, you know, traveling by foot or by sea... Um, and you know, so whatever transmission letters and that kind of thing took time to, to circulate. So I, I don't, I don't really know, but it would be a fair amount of time. And and also the travel conditions, and people could get held up, and there was sickness, and I mean, there's all kinds of factors that could delay communication that were just of a more practical nature. So we really can't even. I'm sure that there's someone who's done some massive research on it. 
modern time now, we would have to have a it's, somewhere very far away to even comprehend. Yeah, it's very hard to it's very hard for us to get our heads back, especially in our day and time. I mean, you know, if you're talking like like seventy five or eighty years ago, you can kind of think, oh, I can kind of see that, but now we're like. I mean, who 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 actually, when they know that they're going somewhere that they've never gone before, stresses out about it before they leave? No one. Why? You, I, you, right. You can. I mean, there's no need to stress out about. It. There's no need to even plan your route. I mean, some of you may be planners and like to do that, but I mean, you can just like, you know, we've never driven to Ziploc, Arkansas, but we've decided to go to Ziploc, Arkansas, and you know, we get the car loaded up and. Next thing you know, we're on the road, and we know at least how to get to Interstate 20. So we might not even look at the map until, you know, we're in Alabama or something, you know. So, I mean, it's so I mean, the difference is just, it's very hard for us to get our minds around this. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's one thing. This, this massive expansion, you know, was, was part of, uh, sort of the landscape and giving rise to or pr- providing the, the ground, if you will, for this rise in the power of the bishops. The other thing that we've talked about is the significant impact in it of, the, of influential heresies that emerged in the first few centuries of the church. I mean, there was a need for concerted, organized, and authoritative response to these heretical teachings. As, as we talked about, some of these heresies took root and grew, um, had, had an, an organized structure. You had churches that were founded upon these movements, Gnosticism, Marcionism, Montanism. I mean, it wasn't just sort of fly by night, someone showed up with some kind of radical message and they had you know, a few hundred people that latched onto them. No, we're talking about very organized establishing churches around these movements and growing and expanding and impacting the true church. So you, you had to have some kind of concerted and organized and authoritative response to these movements. Bruce Shelley says this, The rejection of Montanism with its prophesying and moralizing disclosed the church as an institution more clearly than at any other moment. The church preached to the nations and revealed its universality. It confronted heretics and articulated its orthodoxy. It struggled with sin and developed its episcopacy. That's, that's the historical summary that Shelley gives us about, about this period in time where the church, in, in a quite understandable way, was responding to these heresies, but, in, but, but seeking to do that in very formal kinds of ways. And it gave rise to, again, if you see something disruptive like that happening, who's in charge? What's the right message? What is the truth? Who's going to be the most persuasive voice in that mix to give us a sense of stability? And, and as you know, um, most people are followers, Right? Most people are followers. And I don't mean that in a negative way. Please don't hear me say that as a negative thing. It's just that most people, I mean, how many of you are completely comfortable if I walked up to you and said, hey, listen, would you do me a favor? I need you to do announcements today in front of the church. Would you mind just taking this sheet of paper and delivering announcements? How many of you would feel totally comfortable doing that? Raise your hand. No problem. 
So maybe three or four out of this group, right? So if this, if this room was filled with 100 people, you might get maybe 10% that would feel comfortable doing that. Now, that's not an indication of leadership, but I'm just saying we're wired in such a way that we, we're listening to someone else deliver a message, right? It's not that we're like 90% of the people are the ones delivering the message. Most of us are listening to the message. Well, that was the case at this particular point in time. You have these heresies that are emerging, and there's people that are wanting to hear what's the truth. How do we respond? And so it gave, it gave rise to greater authority, greater centralized authority. The other thing, another factor you have is the emergence of um, a more concentrated church governance and authority that kind of began to develop. It became more pronounced. Of course, um, when we see in the New Testament, we're going to look at this in much more detail next week, but in the New Testament you see this, as we've already mentioned, you have um, the apostles appointing other leaders discipling them and leaving them at these churches as overseers and as deacons. So you really have in the New Testament this sort of this two-pronged approach toward sort of church, formal church leadership or governance. You have uh, the overseer or elder, uh, presbyter is another term that you see, or, or a bishop is another term for overseer. And these, these are used interchangeably in the New Testament, although that's argued against, and we'll talk about that more next week. And then you have the, the deacon as sort of a formal role in the church, which is the servant, the one who, who tends to the ministry needs of the church primarily and serves the needs. You'll recall uh, early on the appointment of the original seven um, deacons in the church to, to help with the um, disbursement of food and, and material goods to the widows and orphans in need in the church and taking care of the, the material needs of the church, in fact. But after the turn of the, the first century into the second century, this kind of began to change. And so the New Testament pattern, and really, you know, for a long period of time in that first century, the, the, the authority of the apostles was sort of unchallenged. And it was unchallenged even beyond that, in a sense, but the application of what they taught was, is what kind of uh, took a turn. So you see this really emerging in um, the second century. You have Ignatius, who was a pastor of the church at Antioch, and he wrote a series of letters, and in those letters he repeatedly speaks about a single bishop of the churches. So he just begins to, so, so we, don't, we, we, we don't know from history, you know, there's no single point where you're like, that's when all this changed. But what you see is this gradual emergence over time where there's these references to a single bishop as sort of the appointed leader of a church. Singular appointed leader of a church. He, in fact, uh, would articulate sort of a three-pronged leadership model um, in the early part of the second century, Ignatius did. It was this singular bishop, and then you had this body of presbyters, which you might refer to as elders, and then you would have this group of deacons. So rather than him seeing the bishop or overseer, as the same as an elder, as the same as a presbyter, so that you have a plurality of overseeing leadership, he would see a singular leader in the bishop title, and then a group of assisting assisting governing elders, and then the deacons. 
So that kind of emerged as this growing, more formalized understanding of church organization and leadership. Uh, He would say that God's grace and the Spirit's power flow to the flock through this united ministry. So his, even, even the, in his writing, he would, he would sort of grant great spiritual authority to this governing organ, organization of men in the church. And then you have this other factor that was emerging during this time. Um, you have this growing emphasis on apostolic succession. This became a thing, pretty important thing in the life of the church. And it was really a reaction to Gnosticism. This is what's interesting about that. In other words, if you go into the New Testament, you don't find anywhere the Apostle Paul, Peter, John, any New Testament writers saying that in order for someone to be valid as a leader in the church, they need to be directly ascended from me and my authority. That's never what you see. In fact, you see quite the opposite articulated from them. However, and so you you have to ask the question, well, why did this become such an important thing? Where where did this emphasis come from? Well, it didn't come from Scripture. So there's your first clue that there's a problem. It did not come from Scripture. It came as a reaction to the teachings of Gnosticism in the church. So the Gnostics, according to Shelley, they claimed apostolic succession for their teachers. Here's what Shelley says. He says, Jesus had entrusted a secret wisdom to certain teachers before he ascended, according to the Gnostics. These teachers in turn passed on this special truth to other teachers, and they in turn to others. So the Gnostic teachers, not the churches, had the true philosophy. In other words, as you recall from Gnosticism, Gnosticism claims that you have, that, that there's this special knowledge that you have to have and apprehend in order to be saved. And there are special people who have been granted that knowledge that have the wisdom and insight to be able to pass that knowledge on. It's not just available to everyone. And they would actually tie in the Christian version, the Christian aberration of Gnosticism, they would, or the Gnostic aberration of Christianity, I should say, they would tie their authority of this special secret saving message to the teachers that in, their, in their movement that traced all the way back to the apostles. So the church was like, whoa, 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 no, 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 time out. So in other words, they didn't go to Scripture and just preach the gospel authoritatively in response to that. They said, no, we're going to do our own succession list. So, you have Hegesippus, a mid-century, a mid-second century historian, who drew up his succession list, his list of bishops going back to the apostles, at least for Corinth and Rome. So that's kind of where it started in terms of this apostolic succession. Again, in reaction to Gnosticism. So rather than refuting Gnosticism with just the truth, we're going to refute it with our own version of the same error. Shelley goes on to describe that later in the second century, Irenaeus in Gaul and Tertullian in North Africa followed this anti-Gnostic path mapped out by Hegesippus. They pointed to the succession of bishops in the Catholic churches stemming from the apostles and argued 
that this guaranteed the unbroken tradition of the apostles' doctrine within the Catholic churches. Gnostics were wrong, Catholics were right. Just that simple. So, you can only imagine that if you, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm giving you the historical uh, circumstances and factors that contributed to this, but think about this from a spiritual perspective. What is, what is the, the Achilles heel of man? Pride. So you have something in a, someone in a position of leadership, and now not only they have a leadership responsibility in shepherding the flock of God, but they are in succession of the apostles. Good on me. Right? I mean, you can see how this would just feed the pride of man and lead to all manner of corruptive practice, right? So I'm giving you the historical lay of the land, but you only have to think a little bit to see how this could lead to all kinds of spiritual corruption very, very easily. Well, then you have, as another factor, this, in addition to this apostolic succession, you have this development of penance and the church's authority to forgive sins. I mean, now you're well on your way toward, I mean, that would necessitate a very, very singular orientation of apostolically succeeded church authority. If you're talking now about how people account for and pay for their sins and who has the authority to forgive them, now you're into really, really deep waters. So by, by the 3rd century, the early 3rd century, particularly by around 220 A.D., history records that the moral fiber of the church had really lapsed. And you recall from our study of Montanism, he was rightfully reacting to this. I mean, some of his writing was in reaction to what was actually going on in the church, and that's just a, a, a lapse in, in moral fiber, moral conviction. And the reality is, is when you when you think about the, the teaching of the apostles, the apostle Paul in particular, and his instruction to the churches, and, and you and you you look at this in, in the early part of the church's history, one of the distinguishing characteristics right away of believers was the radical new creation reality that the Spirit of God brought into the life of what was another otherwise previously completely corrupted pagan idol worshiper. I mean, you would have people who would be saved out of debaucherous modes of living, and their lives would be completely and radically transformed from an outward moral perspective. And the church would see that and not be able to explain it any other way other than this is the power of God at work in this person's life. For them to go from that to this like that, and to begin to work out what has happened on the inside of them with joy and in the face of ridicule and rejection by their former family and friends and social circles. It was a radical, observable body of evidence for them to say, that's, that's the new birth right there. So now you have, a few centuries later, you have this diminishment, this settled in type of 
not-so-convicted moral living. The evidence of the Spirit's work of bringing someone from death to life was really not on vivid display, even amongst the leaders in the church. So it had weakened, and at that time, or leading up to that time, many had believed that serious sins that were committed after baptism called for special treatment. So three in particular, sexual immorality, murder, and apostasy, or denial of the faith, they required special treatment by the church. And the commission of any of these uh, sins, these three in particular, was caused for exclusion from the fellowship of the church and a denial of them to partake, obviously it goes without saying, but a denial of them to be able to partake in the Lord's Supper. And the belief had emerged by this time that the Lord's Supper was one of the means of grace. It was sort of had a saving element. That, that in other words, you not being able to partake in communion in the Lord's Supper put your very salvation at peril. That was the belief. But these three sins required special treatment in the life of the church. But the Bishop of Rome, Callistus, and he was the Bishop of Rome from 217 to 222 AD, he was the first to accept penitent sinners back into the church. This is a new thing. He was the first one to accept these penitent sinners back into the church. And here's, here's, here was his argumentation. He insisted, now going back to this apostolic succession, right? He insisted that he's the bishop of Rome, and the bishop of Rome is, in his words, close to Peter. And since the Lord had given Peter the keys to forgive, bind, or loose the sins of men, then he had that authority as well. This was an outrage. This wasn't immediately adopted in the church. I mean, there were people who battled against this belief to let these people back into the church. You know, these penitent sinners, they needed to pay for their sins. So there was this convolution of bad theology and doctrine that was all centered around institutionalized thinking about the church. Who's in, who's out? And if you get kicked out, what, what little boxes do you need to check? What kind, of, what kind of penalties do you need to pay before we let you back in? So that kind of thinking that would necessitate some body of governing leadership to be able to make those calls was already well underway in its formation. Well, you have another thing that takes place in history during this time. Uh, By AD 250, you have the most violent persecution of the church by the emperor Decius, it was unique, though, because it wasn't, it wasn't oriented toward um, murder or martyrdom as the most prevalent form of persecution. It was more oriented toward torture. They, he realized that martyrdom only fueled the church, that they revered the martyrs so much that it fueled the growth and expansion of the church. So he made a strategic decision. He would just use torture to get them to recant, to get them to make sacrifices to the traditional Roman gods. He believed that the reason why that the Roman Empire, by this time it was beginning to descend, it had lost some of its territory, and he believed it was a result of the Roman Empire gradually moving away from its traditional pagan worship. So he was a a traditional emperor, 
And he was trying to restore the empire back to this type of order and worship and and civil uh, operation for the sake of the empire in his mind. And so the Christians and the Jews were the likely ones to go after. And so the, the torture would ensue and it would be significant. And he would torture them to the point of them committing apostasy. Denying the faith, declaring Caesar as Lord and sacrificing to a traditional Roman god so that they could get a a very valuable certificate that validated that they had done this. This was their sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card, if you will, as a Christian. So there was not as many martyrs, but there were those that were called confessors who endured the persecution and were eventually released and never succumbed to apostasy. And those confessors were revered by the church. And even the church began to believe that those confessors were so spiritual and their convictions ran so deep that they had the power to forgive sins. So the church began to invest that kind of authority into these confessors who survived extensive torture and never denied the faith. Well, Cyprian of Carthage comes along and he didn't agree with granting the authority of these confessors to give full forgiveness of sins, but in sort of a compromise situation, he kind of put forward a system of readmission into the church that, depending upon the degree to which they endured torture before they committed apostasy, that would determine what they would have to do to regain entry back into the fellowship of the church. So those who endured the severest forms of torture before they denied the faith, declared Caesar as Lord, and made a sacrifice to a traditional Roman god, if they survived severe torture, endured severe torture before they gave up, they would get leniency. But those who, as a matter of just practical you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, I mean, I'm willing to just lie and say I'm, I'm Caesar's Lord and just to get my certificate so I can go back to my family. They would, they would need to undergo some kind of church discipline or punishment because they didn't endure the trial as they should have. And this gave rise to a system of penance. A system in which, I mean, think about it. If there's this new system of penance, then that has to be executed by some hierarchy, some ordained leadership in the church. Because penance is a way for you to actually say your sins are now forgiven and you can now come back into the fellowship of the church. And you can now partake in, for example, the Lord's Supper in communion, which, by the way, is one of the means by which you gain salvation, partaking in the body and the blood of Christ. So that's a means of grace for you. Listen to how Shelley describes this. This is the many many were urging Cyprian of Carthage to to take on this blanket pardon power of these confessors who had, who had endured this persecution and did not uh, apostatize. He declined, however, in favor of a system of readmission based upon the degrees of seriousness of the sins. Leniency, he said, should be extended to those who had sacrificed only after excruciating torture and who well might plead their bodies, not their spirits, had given way. 
Those, however, who had gone willingly to make sacrifices must receive the severest punishment. His argument won general approval, so to deal with these degrees of guilt, the church created a graded system of penance. Only after varied periods of sorrow for sin were the sinners allowed to return to the Lord's Supper. The bishop extended forgiveness to the fallen, provided they proved their sorrow by coming before the congregation in sackcloth with ashes on their heads. After this confession and act of humility, the bishop laid his hands upon the penitent as a symbol of restoration to the church. The proposal from the North African confessors, however, was only temporarily defeated. It did not die. It reappeared years later in the Roman Catholic doctrine of treasury of merit and the practice of indulgences. In these, too, the church transferred the merits of the unusually spiritual, the saints, to needy sinners. The most prominent voice for the traditional strict policy came from Rome. A presbyter, a highly respected theologian, Novatian, argued that the church had no power to grant forgiveness to those guilty of murder, adultery, and apostasy. It could only intercede for God's mercy at the last judgment. Novatian met the stiff opposition of another presbyter named Cornelius, who held that the bishop could forgive even grave sins. The church was split over the matter, the past arrayed against the future. The primitive concept defended by Novatian considered the church as a society of saints. The new advocated by Cornelius saw the church as a school for sinners. Cornelius' view was popular enough to get him elected Bishop of Rome by a majority. Novation received the backing of a minority. Soon, Novationists built up a network of small congregations and considered the Catholic churches polluted as a result of their lenient attitude towards sinners. They may have been right, for the Catholic churches now offered unlimited forgiveness to all who sinned. Along with baptism, and ever after it, Catholics had a second sacrament. It was still without form, but they relied upon it as a thing had as as a, as a thing that had form, and considered themselves justified in applying it almost in every case. It was the sacrament of penance. So that's where that came from. You have this whole system now emerging, where the church, through the authority, based upon apostolic succession, in response to Gnostic heresy and their claim to apostolic succession with the need of an organized and coherent response to various forms of heresy. You see how this thing sort of tracks all the way back where people respond to real events, real controversy, real challenge. In other words, there's nothing, there's nothing erroneous to say that this was a problem in the church. This heretical movement was a difficult challenge to the church and needed to be dealt with. There's nothing to say that you should just let those kind of things lie. It's how you respond is the key. And so over and over again, and sort of in this succeeding progressive kind of way, you had these responses and reactions to actual things taking place. Providentially, Decius's persecution took the form and shape that it did, where massive uh, occurrences of apostasy were taking place in the church. People were saying, I'm going to do this just to not be tortured anymore. Now the church had to deal with it. How's the church going to deal with it? Well, it's just going to adopt some kind of man-made system to grant forgiveness of sins through penance. Over and over and over again, you see this throughout history. Real events, the workings of God's providence through the good and the bad of history and the good and the bad of people, and the 
people of God, if they respond in their own will and in their own mind, according to their own sense of right and wrong, as opposed to what is true and explicit from God's word, it often leads to what we see today. A church now, a massive entity that has an understanding of the gospel that is aberrant from the, from the, the truth of Scripture. And you have people who are living lives day to day that are not honoring to the Lord, but they're having routinely their sins absolved by the authority invested in the church and the hierarchy of the church's leadership because they're fulfilling these checkboxes, these sacraments, these acts of penance. That's how it happens. So we have to always, we keep coming back to this. The study of church history, I keep coming back to this. We just have to be faithful to the truth. Regardless of the cost, societally, even physically, and to the extent that we're not, we could find ourselves setting a trajectory that leads to these kinds of things as well. Any final thoughts or closing comments before we pray and are dismissed? Yep. Well, eventually, you know, eventually the, 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 the scriptures were translated into Latin. I mean, that, that kind of comes, yeah, it come, it's, 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 we're getting close. Right, because, you know, some people say, well, it wasn't available to the common church or whatever. Yeah. How are they supposed to know? Yeah. Unfortunately, it is available now to all the common church goers, and still, right. you know, it is Right, right. Yeah, I mean, there definitely was a period in the church's history where access to a, a, a translation of the Word of God in their own native language was kept from them intentionally. And that was abused and, and, and used as a, a, a way of, of um, leveraging authority over them um, and bending them to, their, to the will of the church hierarchy, for sure. But this is really precedes that time. Mm-hmm. All right, let's pray.